begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll uh, continue with the hymn of the month, stanzas one through three. Songs of thankfulness and praise, Jesus Lord, to Thee we raise. Manifested by the star to the sages from afar. Branch of royal David's stem in Thy birth at Bethlehem. Anthems be to thee addressed, God in man made manifest. Manifest at Jordan's stream, Prophet, priest, and king supreme, And at Cana wedding guest, In thy Godhead manifest. Manifest on power divine, changing water into wine. Anthems be to thee addressed, God in man made manifest. Manifest in making whole, palsied limbs and fainting soul. Manifest in valiant fight, quelling all the devil's might. Manifest in gracious will, ever bringing good from hill. Anthems be to thee addressed, God in man made manifest. All right, we'll continue with the uh, question number 20 from Christian Questions and Their Answers. But what should you do if you are not aware of this need and have no hunger and thirst for the sacrament? To such a person, no better advice can be given than this. First, he should touch his body to see if he still has flesh and blood. Then he should believe what the scriptures say of it in Galatians 5 and Romans 7. Second, he should look around to see whether he is ill in the world and remember that there will be no lack of sin and trouble, as the scriptures say in John 15 and 16 and in 1 John 2 and 5. Third, he will certainly have the devil also around him who is lying and murdering day and night and will let him have no peace within or without as the scriptures picture him in John 8, 16, 1 Peter 5, Ephesians 6, and 2 Timothy 2. And the Bible memory work. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. In Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Kids can go off to Sunday school. All right. So um, on the hymn which I just put my copy down. Here we go. Uh, the thing that stuck out to me today, um, and it's part of the Epiphany season, and it's uh, actually part of the... Su- today. Today's Sunday is actually kind of focused on this, uh, is that third stanza, the first line, manifest in making whole, palsied limbs and fainting soul. So one of the uh, things that we do focus on a little bit in Epiphany. Last last week there was the uh, wedding at Cana, which is Jesus' first miracle, but then we get um, kind of some more standard miracles, if you will. So the water and the wine is kind of a weird one, right? Uh, most of Jesus' miracles are centered around healing. And um, that. so today we're going to get two healings in one reading um, at the beginning of Matthew 8, right after Jesus comes down from the Sermon on the Mount. And we get... In the gospel reading today, the healing of the leper and the healing of the centurion's servant. Uh, the sermon is going to be focused on the centurion's servant. But uh, in the the hymnody in Epiphany also recognizes this, this pattern that part of the revealing of who Jesus is is that uh, he comes and he heals people, that he comes and he uh, performs these miracles. Um, and John reminds us that these things are, are written that we might believe. Right. So um, the th- I want to just briefly kind of give a theology of these miracles of Jesus. Um, and there, there's one main point I want to make that and I'm going to mention it a little bit in the sermon today, but but I'll expand on it a little bit here is that when Jesus heals people, um it can often be misunderstood. And you can see this um, not just by us here today, 2,000 years later, but in the Gospels. So there's there's always this question of why why does whenever Jesus heal people, um, many, many times, especially near the beginning of his ministry, he will tell people, don't tell anyone about this, right? Uh, why does he do that? Well, it's because the healing people is not his main goal. 
uh, Jesus' main goal in coming to earth is what? What is the ultimate purpose for which he's set, right? You, you see this all... Yeah, to save us by the work of the cross and his death and resurrection. And uh, to, to accomplish that perfect death, he has to live the perfect life. And so he does minister to people. Um, and and I'm not, we're not trying to discount that ministry at all. It's, it's obviously given for our instruction in, in the word. But Jesus himself will point out, like, this is not the main reason I'm here. Jesus doesn't want to be understood as this kind of uh, spectacular, magical miracle worker, right? Um, he's not, uh, he didn't just come to be the guy who can do the most and uh, most spectacular and amazing miracles. He came to save us. And so while he's here, he, there, there's a couple aspects to the, the healings um, that we do get. I think the main thing to recognize is that uh, I, and I like how the, the hymn phrases this manifest in making whole, that what Jesus is doing when he's healing is he, and, and in all his miracles, is he's restoring creation. He's putting things back in the way that they are supposed to be. And that's because that, uh, really that's his whole work of salvation, right? We can, we can kind of frame what he does on the cross and in the tomb as part of restoring creation, right? The um, One way I've heard this put before is that the point of the second article of the creed, redemption, um, the, the part about Jesus coming to earth and, and dying on the cross and all that, is so that we can get back to the first article of the creed, creation, right? God uh, created this world perfectly and he's going to recreate the new heavens and the new earth on the last day. And that happens through the work of the cross, Right. So when Jesus uh, comes to earth and is coming to restore creation, coming to recreate, one of the things he does is he can't really help. It's like it's like he can't help himself. Um, It's funny when you read some of the the healings. Right. Sometimes Jesus is kind of resistant, like he knows this isn't the main purpose of why he's here, but he's God. So he can heal and he's Jesus. So he has to restore creation. Right. Um, he, he changes things in he does things, changes people into what they were uh, naturally created to be. And so whenever um, there's uh, a leper, he he cleanses them so that they no longer have leprosy. Whenever there's someone with palsied limbs, he heals them so that they can walk. Whenever there's someone that's deaf. Right. Uh, he heals them so that they can hear. And uh, these are. um Beautiful things. I think um, so. So that's that's really the main point I want to make is that that the theology of miracles in Jesus, it's not um, they are a witness to Jesus' divinity. There's no doubt about that. But um, I think it's also clear that um, and the way that Jesus talks about uh, miracles and, and and parables, for that matter. Uh, these things are good teachings of Jesus, but they in themselves don't create faith in an unbeliever. Uh, the thing that creates faith is the the preaching of of the word, um, the application of long gospel in someone's life. And so what we do learn, however, does strengthen our faith and it does teach us this 
what Jesus, it shows us what Jesus came to do, which is mainly to recreate, um, to, to restore creation. Now, that, what was I going to say about that? Oh, yeah, one other thing I would say about that is just kind of a modern application is that I think one of uh, the issues when we talk about biblical miracles and, and what Jesus does in our society today is that um, our society has focused very much, and this isn't totally a bad thing, but it can be a little bit detrimental, I think, if we if we take it too far. Our society has focused very much on um, being kind and in affirming people when they have some sort of, let's just say broadly, uh, disability, right? So if someone is deaf, if someone is um, mute, if someone, uh, you know, can't can't walk correctly and stuff. We have all these things like um, I think of some examples like the Special Olympics, or uh, we try and make a lot of accommodations for people you know that that do have these these issues, and that's all fine. So I'm not I'm not against any of that, but we do have this issue in our society where um, it we kind of want to be so um, nice because obviously in ages past uh, people have. Um, those people have been disregarded, you know, kind of cast out of society. And that, that's also a problem, right? We are to love our neighbor. Jesus, you know, went to these people and, and, and shared meals with these people and all of this. But so we don't want to cast them out. But we should recognize, like, there is something wrong when someone is sick, right? When someone doesn't have the full use of their body as God intended, that this is um, – there's a point where we kind of cross over to the point where we don't recognize that something is um, not right, right? Uh, and and you can kind of see how this uh, bleeds over not just into things like people who are deaf or um, have palsied limbs, but into uh, the whole like uh, transgenderism movement, right? Where if people kind of continue to make this argument that well, I am who I am, and that's like I'm perfect, right? Um, that sin hasn't affected me, and I want this is who I think I really am, and therefore I don't need any help from God. I don't need any restorative creation. I don't need to be forgiven. I don't need God's help. Then um, it can become this, uh, you know, we just have to affirm everybody no matter what, right? But we should recognize that with all of us, like sin has affected not just our souls, but also our bodies, right? I mean, that's the reason everyone dies at the end of the day is because sin has has affected our body and our bodies are not whole like they should be. Um, and so it's, it's good to see the miracles and recognize like Jesus is fixing a problem. And then... That, that's hopeful for us because we know that on the last day when he does recreate the new heavens and new earth, all of those things, right, uh, will will go away, right? When when there's a Christian who's, uh, you know, deaf in heaven, they will be able to hear. They're not going to continue to be deaf, right? And that's going to be a joyous thing. Um, so that that's something I just kind of caution against is 
there's a, it's a very fine line and kind of a gray area, if, if you know what I mean, that we should be careful not to kind of cross over that line to where we're saying that um, there's no problems, <laughs> right? That, that sin hasn't, hasn't uh, caused problems on this earth. And uh, we need to recognize like, yeah, there's, uh, you know, we're going to try and be kind and we're going to deal with these situations as best as we can. And, and we're going to be, um, we're going to love people, right? It's not, uh, they haven't, it's not because of some individual sin they committed that they're the way they are. But um, it, we also shouldn't be overly prideful about it, right? That, that's really kind of what it is, where it's like this pride in something that is um, the effect of sin. And, and that can become dangerous, right? So uh, I see, like, the other place I see it is, um, like, in the amount of bumper stickers people have on their cars for things like this, right? So it's like, I'm, I'm proud that, um, you know, what, whatever, that my child is autistic or whatever. And that's, I mean, like, if you want to bring awareness to an issue, that's one thing. So again, it's this very fine line. So not everyone who has a, you know, autism sticker on their car or whatever is like a bad thing. But if we become like prideful about it and say that that's, that there's no, that that's not an effect of sin in the world. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Um, I, it it kind of makes me sound like a jerk according to modern standards, right? <laughs> but um, I'm not I'm not saying that like, and I'm not saying that anyone is like sinning when they do. Uh, the, you have to take everything on an individual basis, right? You have to talk to the people and see what they're actually thinking. But as a whole, I think our society may have started to cross this line a little bit where we're becoming prideful about the effects of sin in the world, if that makes sense. So, um, and just kind of pretending like, oh, it's not, there's nothing, it's like nothing can ever be wrong. And another place you could, uh, I'm, I'm going to stop talking, I'm just rambling on, but um, one other place that I think you can see that is, I was just, uh, I just heard about this, that this happened last year, but I, I didn't know about it. Um, in Canada, they're very heavy on pushing assisted suicide, you know, euthanasia. Mm-hmm. So, which is obviously um, anti-Christian. I mean, we we should not at all um, condone assisted suicide. Uh, but they'll they'll tell people like, hey, you are who you are. If you like who you are, um, that's great. But hey, if you have this problem, say you're. Uh, you know, mentally ill in some way, um, if you want to just kill yourself, we'll help you, you know? And it's this kind of, again, complete pride in you get to decide who you are. um, You get to decide what's right and what's wrong with you. And um, we just need to be very careful of that. I think uh, we need, we just need to recognize, look, God created people to be a certain way because of sin. People aren't that way. But what we want to do on this earth is work towards, you know, by forgiveness and absolution and by uh, by being involved in the church, we want to work towards giving people the best life they can have on this earth. And then when God calls them home, they'll be restored to an even better uh, body. So anyway, 
Uh, I'll stop talking now. It's just a kind of a hobby horse of mine. But okay. Um, for the uh, catechism, any questions on that or thoughts? On the uh, catechism, um, just one thing to point out here. So remember last week we talked about the frequency of, of communion and um, the the need to go, uh, the need to receive communion. And uh, I, I love what Luther says here. Um, I mean, it's kind of humorous, right? I've been mentioning this, that the first person, the, the first thing someone should do is um, touch his touch his body to see if he still has flesh and blood, and then see what the Bible says about what it's like to live in this world, which connects to what we were just saying, right? Um, living in this world comes with it negative effects on not just the soul, but on the body, um, on the body itself, and um, we should see what the scriptures have to say of it in Galatians 5 and Romans 7. Romans 7, of course, is the place where Paul um, talks about how he wants to do what's right, but his flesh um, still wars against him, and and he can't. Um, he still has these carnal desires where he he knows what the right thing to do is, and then he he sins, and he knows what what sin is, and 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 um, can't do the right thing. So um, that's Romans seven, and then second, he should look in the world and remember what the scriptures say about the world. And then he should look at what the scriptures have to say about the devil. And um, as we read in First Peter 5, that the devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So this is a very common, um, throughout Lutheran theology, a very common kind of uh, trilogy or a trifold or a trinity of um, ways to think about sin in our lives is... Our flesh, the world, our sinful flesh, the world, and the devil. Um, so our own sinful flesh, the world, and the devil. And sometimes people will call this like the unholy trinity, right? Uh, the, the threefold nature of sin. And it is true, right? All these things are kind of different ways that sin manifests itself in our life. So we can talk about Jesus being manifest in Epiphany. We can also talk about sin being manifest. And when we look at our sinful flesh, right, um, and and the sin that we commit—that's the um, that's the incarnation of sin in our life, if you will, right. And then, if you look at the the devil, he is sin um, in a type of person, right. He is sin uh, also in a way incarnate, right, um, but not in our lives, but. Um, the, this e- the evil one coming to tempt us and accuse us. And then uh, the world is a sin that is uh, tempting us from outside of us, not as, not as a person, but the, the overall effects of sin on creation, right, around us. And so uh, you get these sin kind of from all different angles attacking us. Um, and that's why Luther says, that's why we need... So sometimes we ask the question, why does God give us so many sacraments, so many means of grace? Why does he give us baptism, preaching, Lord's Supper? Um, why does he give us all these different means of grace? 
Well, that's because sin is constantly attacking us in all these different ways, right? In our flesh, in the world, through the devil. So we need these means of grace, and that's why Luther says you should um, run to the sacrament. Uh, he says in the, I think it's in the large catechism, he says that if you knew how many flaming arrows the devil had pointed at you at any time, you would run to the sacrament as often as possible, right? Um, it's a good reason to uh, come to church every week, um, aside from what the, the Bible says about the Sabbath day, is that um, the devil has flaming arrows pointed at all of us, right? And the, de- the devil doesn't want us in church, right? Um, so it's easy to make excuses. I'm preaching to choir because, you know, these are the Bible study attenders. But um, the, the, it's easy to make excuses like and justify missing church for a week or whatever. But um, that's exactly what the devil wants, right? So uh, he wants us away from, from the Lord's altar. So something to think about. All right, any uh, questions or thoughts, comments on any of that? Well, we're going to uh, pick back up with uh, Jehoram in Second Chronicles 21. And we'll, we'll probably get to Ahaziah as well. So, um, my notes out here. Let's see. Uh, so yeah, if you remember, um, after Jehoshaphat died, who was one of the good kings, we had uh, Jehoram, his son, who beca- who starts a train of wickedness. And you can kind of see this. Um, so you could see it with Asa and Jehoshaphat uh, that. It's easier for whatever king uh, comes to kind of follow in the footsteps of his father. And so you'll get these like groupings of like good king, good king, good king, and then and then evil, 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 and then good, good, and then evil, evil. So um, that that'll we'll, we'll see that as we continue to go through the kings of Judah. You can kind of see that pattern somewhat um, if you look at just glance down through the the chart of the kings. Um, And that's something we'll talk about uh, with Ahaziah here in a minute, too, is the way that someone's counselors or someone's, uh, the company someone's keep, the way it affects them, right? So, um, but we talked about, we started talking about Jehoram, sorry, Jehoram, in Second Chronicles 21, the first thing he does, um, he has obviously already been influenced by his flesh, the world, and the devil in some way. Uh, the first thing he does is he murders all his brothers <laughs> and any other potential rivals to the throne when he takes the um, throne. That's in verse 4. And uh, he uh, does evil, right? He, he does all this evil. He... Um, sets up altars and and uh, all those types of things 
Uh, he walks in the, the ways of the evil kings. And uh, you can actually see, so um, we're going to get to this with, with Ahaziah, but Jehoram has a relationship to the um, he he ends up with in a relationship to the evil kings of Israel. So he marries Attilia. Uh, we talked about this, Athelia, Attilia, however you want to say that. And Athelia, which I didn't, um, I had forgotten about until I was um, preparing for today, that she is the daughter of. Ahab and Jezebel, right? So if you remember back uh, in the kings of Israel, Ahab is one of the most wicked kings, uh, the husband of Jezebel, who is a murderous, um, she murders the prophets and uh, she causes all sorts of problems, right? You probably know the story of Naboth's vineyard. We talked about that. And um, their daughter is this uh, Athelia who Jehoram falls in love with and marries. And um, verse 6, I think, is where it says, um, he had the daughter of Ahab for his wife and did evil inside the Lord. Um, so you can see how this, again, this influence of other people in the world can affect, right? Attilia is uh, well-trained in sin, right, by her parents, and um, that affects Jehoram's reign, okay? Uh, so Jehoram... Uh, we talked about last week, we ended on this, that in verse 7, the Lord did not destroy the house of David uh, because of the covenant he had made with David since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. And we talked about uh, the difference between um, let me just put this up here first. Okay. Um, the difference between punishment And destruction, that there's a distinction between these two things, that God can not destroy something completely. He can leave a faithful remnant um, of his church, right? He says in Matthew 16, the gates of Hades will not prevail against, but he can still punish his church, right? He can still punish um, unfaithfulness among his people. And so he does punish, um, and that, that's something we always need to be on the lookout for, right? We can't just... Um, say to ourselves, oh, it's okay. God would never let our church die. He would never let our uh, our church go through suffering, right? Um, yes, he does punish unfaithfulness. And just because, you know, churches, unfortunately, like everyone knows this, churches do close their doors, yeah. right? Um, not every church in all places will close their doors because the gates of Hades won't prevail against the church as a whole. But... Um, and I'm not saying that every, by the way, I'm not saying every church that closes its doors is because of unfaithfulness, but um, God does uh, send suffering and punishment and allow suffering um, on his, on his, even his own church and his people, right? The Lord chastises those whom he loves. So um, we always kind of need to keep that distinction in mind. So the Lord's not going to destroy him, but then what happens is in verse eight and, and onward, we can see that um, there is punishment. So uh, the Edom, which was a kind of a vassal state to, Israel, to Judah, um, rebels against him. 
And then Libna um, in verse 10 also revolts against him. And so he has these uh, these two big... So if you remember, one of the blessings of Solomon's kingdom was how much it expanded, how much they had taken over, right? Which was originally the um, point of Jesus of God bringing them into the promised land. And uh, here we see one of the kings out of unfaithfulness uh, losing that that gained power, that gained kingdom, um, right? Okay, so then um, Elijah prophesies to, to him um, in verse uh, 12 and on there and uh, tells him, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, right? So it's like he's, it's almost like he defected to Israel, right? Israel did not have any good kings um, except for Jehu for a little bit, <laughs> right? Uh, which Jehu is actually going to come up here in a minute. But uh, uh, because you've done all this and uh, you have uh, played harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab, um, he's you know committed adultery against God, right? The bride of Christ has committed adultery against her bridegroom and killed your brothers, so on and so forth. Um, behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. So very lovely disease that the Lord strikes him with um, that he's basically going to puke up his own guts to, to give the uh, PG-13 version uh, until he until he dies. And so um, that's what happens, right? Um, the... There's some more um, military invasions that go on and um, causes him much many problems. But the Lord, verse 18, strikes him with this incurable disease. And after two years, um, his intestines came out because of his sickness and he died in severe pain. So, and his people made, uh, so let, let, I want to get to that in a second, first of all. So, um, yeah, this, this uh, horrific disease that he dies with um, is uh, part of that punishment, right? So he was unfaithful, and and he just because he was part of the house of the of David didn't mean that he was going to go to heaven. Didn't mean that he was going to go unpunished, right? So the Lord um, maintains the house. He maintains the promise he made in Second Samuel seven, but um, that doesn't mean he's that unfaithfulness is not going to be punished, right? And so. This happens, and then what's what's very interesting here is these next couple verses that uh, the people did not. Um, so, depending on how literally you translate this, the people had no burning for him like the burning of his fathers, or they did not bury him um, as they did his fathers. Uh, so, what's your translations say there in verse 19? People made no funeral fire in his honor. Yeah. Like for his right. So basically, the point here is that they don't treat him like a king by the time he dies, and um, it's kind of uh, interesting, right? That the reason that the the kings go astray is often because of pride, right? Because remember, what are the three needs for a good king? Uh, word. 
worship, and prayer. And all of these things uh, involve humility. All of these things involve submitting yourself before the Lord, before his word, bowing before him in worship, coming to him in prayer, asking for help, um, not going for yourself, right? Not trying to do things on your own. Well, what, why, why are they prideful? Um, because they want the glory of the world. They want uh, to, to have, they're, they're vain. They want to be praised among men. They want um, to gain the whole world, right? And thus they forfeit their soul. Well, it's interesting that part of the punishment of the Lord is that they don't get that, <laughs> right? They, even though um, they worked their whole lives uh, to be prideful and to do things without the Lord in order to gain the glory of the world, at the end of the day, even at their death, right, he's not remembered. Um, he is not treated like a king. He doesn't get the funeral that a king should get. And so it's this kind of irony that even though what he, um, the reason that he did not submit to the Lord was so that he could get the glory of the world, he never got the glory of the world. And so it's a lose-lose situation for him, right? Um, and, uh, and then he's dead and he's uh no one remembers him right no one even no one even cares so only for our instruction in in the book of the chronicles do we remember so um on that uplifting note we'll move on to ahaziah unless anyone has any questions about jehoram so ahaziah is very interesting um there he only reigns for one year and um, this uh, begins around verse uh, 22, right? Um, oh, I guess I should have read verse... Uh, chapter 22. Chapter 22. Yeah. I should have uh, read verse 20 as well from 21 about Jehoram. Um, he reigned in Jerusalem eight years and to no one's sorrow departed, <laughs> right? <laughs> However, they buried him in the city of David, but but not in the tombs of the kings. So he does not get this kingly funeral, um, and uh, no one's sad that he's gone. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Okay, so Ahaziah. So um, Ahaziah is his youngest son, and um, we have a problem in the Bible here that uh, in verse 2, what do your translations say? Does it say Ahaziah was 42 or 22? 22. 42. 42? He was 22. 22? Okay. Yeah, so in Chronicles, um, in the Masoretic text, which is the the general... So um, the Masoretic text, or MT, is a medieval uh, Hebrew text of the Bible that this group of um, Jewish people, the Masoretes, put together and from from the different Hebrew manuscripts. And uh, it's a very stable and kind of solid text. Uh, and so that's what most it's, – it's very different than the New Testament. 
but the the way that we translate the New Testament. But most translations of the Old Testament are based on the Masoretic text, the MT. And uh, there are some textual variants in the MT. And one of them is that in 2 Kings 8, where we also learn about Ahaziah, I'm just kind of using 2 Chronicles mostly, but 2 Kings 8 and 9 has other details about Ahaziah um, and his life. Uh, 2 Kings says 22, and then 2 Chronicles says 42, but there's a textual variant in the MT that says 22 um, in the MT. So probably what happened is somewhere along the way, a couple scribes started copying 42 instead of 22, and then that kind of stuck in the MT. But Well, that was really about the age of his father when he died, so yeah. that, would have, that wouldn't have even made sense. Yeah, when he became uh, king, and then Second uh, King says that he was 22 when he became king. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 22 makes a lot more sense. Why? Um, because well, he was the youngest Because he was the youngest son. And so that's why most translations just say it's probably 22, um, and there's that was just a scribal error. But um, some translations, just out of faithfulness to the text, will retain the 42 and then put a footnote in. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just one of those interesting things. If uh, in case you're like wondering why does Second Kings say 22 and Second Chronicles says 42, that's that's why. I just thought there were so many different guys by the same name. No, same same guy, same because uh, it's uh they they normally specify who the the father is, and then also his mother, and then also uh, Judah or Israel, right? So um, this is clearly Ahaziah in Judah. Um, so yeah, there is an Ahaziah um, in Israel as well, and the reason for the. Uh, similar names is because they're actually related. So, again, like we talked about, Attilia, Ahaziah's mother, is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And so, um, Jehoram uh, is obviously a family name. Uh, so, Jehoram and Jehoram are brother-in-laws. I, yeah, right. Jehoram and Jehoram are brother-in-laws. Um, and then Ahaziah is um, the Ahaziah and Jehoram of Israel are uncles of Jehoram or no of Ahaziah of Judah. Everyone get that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, right. Just uh, look at the chart and then um, remember that Attilia is. The daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and then and then you can figure out the family relations from there. Um, so that's why there's a lot of name overlap in that era, is because it's one big unhappy family. Um, so that that's what's going on there. All right, and that's actually important for the story of of Ahaziah. So, okay, so he's 22. Um, he is kind of probably you know a little bit immature because of his young age, and um, so actually, as we get into verses three and four, this is important. Um, Attilia, the granddaughter of Omri. So you can also see that um, they're another relation from from Israel, which is so. It's interesting sometimes the 
the way that the Bible will relate these family relations, like they'll identify the great or the grandfather instead of the father or whatever. But um, so uh, Ahaziah is going to walk in the ways of Ahab, um, which again, it's interesting. It's identifying him in the ways of the people in Israel, not even though he's a Judah king. Um, it's identifying him with the people of Israel. Um, for his mother advised him to do wickedly. Therefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He followed their advice and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, which would be his uncle, uh, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, of Ramoth Gilead. Okay, so this is a, a big point that I want to make. Um, is that especially young young people and but but everyone right every king needs good counselors they they need to ge- keep good company if they're going to be good um, you almost get the sense here that Ahaziah is not um, he doesn't go and do things of his own accord a lot. Kind of the sense you got with Ahab and Jezebel, that Ahab was kind of a non-player, and then Jezebel, like, counseled him to do really wicked things, right? Um, Ahaziah doesn't go and of his own accord, like like his father, um, set up false altars to, to, to pagan gods, right? Um, he doesn't of his own accord go and go out and murder prophets or anything like that. But... When he takes the throne, he's surrounded by wicked people. He's surrounded by his wicked mother. He's surrounded by his wicked uncles. He's surrounded by um, all of the, the house of Ahab. And, um, I mean, he probably knew Jezebel, right? Je- Jezebel was probably counseling him as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, the need for good counselors, right? And if you think about the three needs that we've kind of identified for a good king, um, a lot of these are dependent on other people helping you, right? So the word comes by the the word of the prophets, right? And so um, if he doesn't have good prophets, he has false prophets teaching him, right? Not not true prophets teaching him. Worship is uh, at this time basically dependent on good Levites being around you, and um, he doesn't surround himself with those, right? Um, now, prayer is a little bit uh, different. That's that's more dependent on yourself. But you can see how other people can um, really tear you down in this way. And we need um, – th- this doesn't just go for kings or people in leadership positions. But, yeah, the Proverbs Council is constantly that we should keep good company. Um, and – like obviously, when we sin and when Ahaziah sins, it's our own fault. Um, we're we're responsible for our sin, but um, we can either put ourselves in positions to sin more, or we can put ourselves in positions uh, to to fight against sin. And um, he has put himself in this position of uh, sinning more, right? Okay, so. Um, the rest of his story is um, rather sad, but this is what um, 
this is part of what happens when you keep bad company is you're also liable to uh, experience the um, natural consequences of the sins of those people. And so he goes and uh, visits, this starts at about verse 7, he goes and visits um, Joram or Jehoram of Israel, his uncle. And uh, when he arrives, and you can go read the whole story about this in 2 Kings, but um, we get the uh, summarized version in 2 Chronicles here. When he arrives, uh, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord appointed to cut off the house of Ahab. So if you remember, Elisha had commanded uh, Jehu to go and cut off the house of Ahab, right? Jehu was the one who was responsible for getting rid of Ahab, for getting rid of Jezebel, because they were causing so much destruction of the people in Israel. And um, since, uh, so he goes and visits um, Jehoram of Israel, or Joram of Israel, whichever name you want to use. And this is the same time in which Jehu comes and is going to execute judgment on the house of Ahab. And Jehu shows up and he finds them. And um, he, so that the whole story basically goes like this, that um, Jehu comes in on a chariot. It's kind of a good action movie scene. And he shoots Ahab with a bow and arrow um, and, and Ahab falls. And Ahaziah um, runs away, but Jehu chases him down and kills him as well. And the reason he is is because this is what the Lord told him to do. He told him to cut off the house of Ahab. And uh, Ahaziah is part of the house of Ahab, right? Um, He is part of the family of Ahab. And um, instead of separating himself from that bad company and and being a good king in Judah like he could have done, uh, he keeps company with the house of Ahab. And so he is also cut off um, because by the by the hand of Jehu, um, according to the word of the prophet. So um, that's that's uh, that's his downfall. That's how he falls. Now that creates. Um, let me see here. Yeah. So let, first of all, uh, I'll address this verse real quick. That. Um, we talked about the burial of Jehoram and how it was a unkingly burial. Ahaziah, and you can again, you can kind of see here that Ahaziah is not considered as evil as his father, right? It, the really the issue is his mixing up in the house of Ahab, because when the people bury him, um, they do bury him with the correct like kingly funeral rites. So this is verse uh, eleven when they. When they had him killed, they buried him. And this is actually, interestingly, the people of, like Jehu and the people of Israel, um, the, the faithful people, the faithful remnant in Israel, they recognize that he's the grandson of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all his heart. And so they give him a kingly burial. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting um, that they do honor to the, to the line of Jehoshaphat. Um, they don't bury uh, Ahab and Jezebel that way. Remember Ahab and Jezebel, do you remember how they, how their bodies are disposed of? Yeah, the dogs got them. Gary's got it. The dogs got them. Yeah, they threw them to the dogs. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, but, but they do give Ahaziah this uh, kingly burial. Okay, um, we'll just stop there. Attilia 
takes over next, uh, the wicked queen. So Judah has its own version of Jezebel. Um, ironically, well, not ironically, the uh, daughter of of Jezebel. So um, Attila is going to take over as a wicked queen, and we'll uh, move into her next week. Any final questions or comments on any of this? Is everyone tracking all the people and family relations? Yeah, that was my question. Yeah, no, so uh, same Jehu. Jehu is a general in Israel's army or a captain in Israel's army. And the uh, Elisha commands him um, to go and take over. So Israel does not have – so the, the line of Judah is important because 2 Samuel 7. But um, it really doesn't matter who is the king of Israel because – that that's not where the promise is given. So, um, so Jehu is simply just a general who takes over, um, and so the family line kind of changes. But, yeah. Okay. Good question. Any other questions or comments? It says here that uh, was it uh, Jeroboam was buried in the city of David, but not in the king's tomb. Where is that? Uh, going. Oh, yeah, that's, um, yeah, so Je- Jehoram uh, of Judah is, they, he is buried in the city of David because he is a Jude, he is of the tribe of Judah, um, but he's buried not with the kings. Yeah, so it's a more shameful burial. Yep. All right. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would keep us ever faithful to you. Uh, Teach us to listen to your word. Help us to worship you rightly and help us to uh, pray to you when we are in need of your help. Help us to keep good company, that we would uh, encourage one another in the faith and not fall into bad company and fall into sinful ways. We pray that you would bless our time together today here as uh, those of the household of faith, that in our worship we would encourage one another and in our worship we would receive you. We pray all this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.